0: I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you're going, better go in the right direction In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version I'm never gonna give up, give up, you're listening to the Tom Fricklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home
1: for community radio. All
0: right, welcome New Haven, uh, welcome the world. Thank you, 103 FM, uh, 103.5 FM New Haven. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Tom Fricklin. Thank you, Harry, for engineering our show. Uh, today we've got a really important show to bring you. Uh, We have been following a path of education reform that has spent over three trillion dollars in just the past uh, 12 years in this nation. Started with no child left behind, went to race to the top, every student succeeds. And we just keep following these trends that focus uh, primarily on using test scores to motivate and engage and raise these test scores. Despite the fact that researchers have told them that we have 100 years of data that shows that focusing on those things does not raise the test scores of your students. But anyway, so we begin with this organization that we have today. I think it's time we remind people that there's an organization in the country, United to Save Our Schools, and it really began in 2011. They put together a conference, a rally, and a march uh, protesting these kinds of emphasis on standardized testing as, as the sole measure of school reform, uh, inequity. And on, in that 2011, they brought 12,000 people to Washington, D.C. To, uh, they had a conference, they had a rally, they had a march. They brought incredible educators. Diane Ravitch, Nancy Carlson Page, Jonathan Kozel. Uh There were so many that, 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 that it's, it's just even Matt Damon came uh, to, to this event and it started a whole kind of movement going on and many other groups came out. But today I wanna let people know that the United to Save Our Schools for since 2011 has never stopped working to where well, they have a model that inform, educate, and help people to collaborate on acting. Uh, to take action, to fight uh, misguided policies and, and and failed reforms in our schools, so today I have two of our, our shining stars from that group, uh, uh, Becky Smith, and she 'll introduce herself, and then uh, Denisha Jones, who 's been a guest on this show before. So Becky, how about we start with you? Tell us who you are and you know what you do, what 's your passions.
2: Hi, Jesse. Thanks. It's good to uh, good to be here talking with you all this morning. So I'm Dr. Becky Noel-Smith. I currently reside in California. Um, I have been an educational activist, I guess I would say. Actually, the Saber Schools March event in D.C. was the first one I ever attended um, and really set the ball rolling for me. I, as a former educator at that point in time, and then a mother, um was just driven mad by what i had experienced as a public school teacher the absurdities that i had uh that i had witnessed and um so uh, that led to a good decade of educational activism and eventually grad school and now i um i'm a philosopher of education and i teach future teachers about my own uh, perspective, uh, through my own experiences, what I have witnessed over the last 22 years uh, as an educator and um, try to help folks um, move out into the schools and, and create classroom spaces and learning communities that are democratic and socially just.
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right. And so you were there on that first first event. Oh, my gosh. And you were there with us in Selma. You've been there I don't know. I, I I don't think you even have a life outside of the United States. Uh, <laughs> the roots, run, to deep at at the roots run deep do. at this
2: point. The roots <laughs> run uh, deep at this point.
0: Doctor Jones, could you take us on your journey?
1: Um. Thanks, Jesse. It's good to be back. Uh, my name is Doctor Denisha Jones. I. Um, right now, I'm the executive director of Defending the Earliers, which is a nonprofit group that actually got its origins after that 2011 rally as well. Um, and I'm also a faculty member at Sarah Lawrence College um, in the Art of Teaching program at Howard University School of Education. Um, I was also like Becky at that first event. And so what was really interesting was that I had lived in D.C. I did my undergrad at University of District of Columbia I'd lived in DC up until 2004. I taught kindergarten. My first job was at kindergarten at Peabody, uh, Capitol Hill Cluster School in on the Capitol Hill. And then I left to go to grad school. And then after grad school, I was in California. So I was just getting ready to come back to DC in 2011. I had just moved back that summer. Um, I was taking a fellowship year at Howard University. That's how I got involved with them. And I had started getting active in protests in San Diego, but it wasn't around education, right? But if we remember what was happening, there was a lot happening just in general, right? The governor of Wisconsin was like pissing everybody off and like people were protesting and austerity budget cuts against workers, right? So I remember going to a few protests and then I come back to DC and everyone's talking about Save Our Schools and this huge rally. And I just said, I got to go check this out. I'm back home, what felt like home, and there was this massive event. I remember just meeting so many people there. I met Morna McDermott. She had that amazing cemetery display of like what how no child left behind had killed all the things, right? Killed creativity, killed things. It's one of the best things I remember. I still have photos of it. Um, I connected with folks from um, the COE, the Council for Opportunity of Education, and TRIO programs, right? And and TRIO is my life, right? I was upper bound, I was McNair scholar. TRIO is why I'm Dr. Jones today, um, and yeah, as I mentioned, like all of the groups after that came, right? In 2011. We were, we oh, save our schools organizing this event, but none of the other groups had existed then. Badass Teachers, United Act Out, Network for Public Education, Defending the Early Years, they all formed within the next two years after that monumental event in 2011. And I remember going to the conference part at American University, um, hearing Jonathan Colville speak, seeing documentary. I think that's the first time I saw the the documentary about um, uh, the, the, the one against Waiting for Superman. I think that was, I think I aired there as well too with Brian Jones and, and the New York folks as well too. The inconvenient truth behind Waiting for Superman. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. And like, it changed my life. Like I became an education justice activist after that and got involved with all of those organizations and, and save our schools. I went to a couple planning meetings for that event before it actually happened. Cause I was back home and trying to like get involved. And I remember meeting Beth, right. And, and, and other folks. And I think Jesse as well. And yeah, it just really, we became a little, did we know where we'd end up almost, what was that? Uh, uh, 12 years later.
0: <laughs> and, and, uh, When people ask me uh, a little bit about, they'll they'll say, they'll say, well, how long have you been doing this? And I tell them that uh, as long as every child in our public schools doesn't have have access to a high quality, equitable education, then that's how long I've been doing it. And that's how long I'll continue to do it. Uh, United to Save Our Schools is definitely unique because uh, in the beginning, back then, and we we've we've got a lot of updates going on, but back then, it was really we took on these uh high stakes assessment driving. We spent a quarter of a billion dollars, a trillion dollars rather sorry, so that's two hundred and fifty billion dollars on testing and new curriculums that all failed. The promise of NTOB was that every child would be a reader by January 1st, 2014. Not only they would be a reader at grade level, they would do math at grade level and they're right at grade level. That was the promise. We spent $1.2 trillion on that and it failed and nobody went to jail and nobody got you know, nobody got their hand slapped in that time, but we would continue. But Save Our, United to Save Our Schools did that. And we also, we began as uh, quickly to give people information because some of you know us as uh, Save Our Schools. And we made a transition to United to Save Our Schools because we started realizing from just what uh, Dr. Jones and Dr. Smith, you were talking about, all these other groups that grew up out of that, we learned that we, uh, no one needed to take the lead in this struggle. We needed to have a collaborative effort. And so we became United to Save Our Schools. Those are things I've, uh memories that I want to think before we start on our current campaign, uh, Becky, You've been to Selma with us at the education summit. And I remember one year you were down there. I think you brought all your children and we were making balloon <laughs> puppets and all kinds of things. And you said, we've got to be there. We've got to have stuff for kids. Could you, could you tell us because in Selma is where United to save our schools connected to Reverend Barber. War One yeah. Mondays campaign. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Cause people don't know. They'll say, well, what were you doing in all those years? I'm saying, well, I think I've been to Selma like five or six times to the Education Summit. Were you there? But, but you were there. So tell us about your experience.
2: Yeah. So um, at that point in time, I was uh, working on my PhD at the University of Alabama. So I was just up the road from Selma. And um, one of the things about, um, about Uniting to Save Our Schools is we've done, pre-COVID, we did actions all over the country. You know, we'd been up to New York. Um, we'd done things in D.C. We were at the 50th. Uh, anniversary march in Washington D.C. Um, and um, and then we also were at the 50th anniversary of the Bridge Crossing Jubilee in Selma, Alabama, at the Education Summit, which gave us the opportunity to connect, as Jesse said, connect with Reverend Barber and the Moral Mondays movement, and to see how. Um, I think this is something we all had intuitively known. Uh, we weren't. We weren't. Um, this wasn't new to us necessarily but the moral Mondays movement really helped us connect it to the broader i mean this is a social a broad social problem this isn't just about schooling this isn't just about education this is about well-being for human beings um humane spaces humane support systems of which public schooling is an absolute uh foundation um as and and so i will refer people to um Uh, As a result of broadening our scope and our focus, we did draft um, a Uniting to Save Our Schools platform for public uh, education, which highlights the broad ways in which uh, public schools are so vital to the well-being. You know, we 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 advocate for public school, for public education as a human and civil right, right? Um, you know, arguing for fair and equitable education for all, safe, socially and racially just public schools are among some of the tenets that drive the work that we do. And we have a pretty extensive platform that we've laid out online that guides all of our work. Uh, but really, I think we can point back to, um, the massive numbers of people, the collaboration and the conversations that we had uh, in Selma uh, especially with with Reverend Barber who if you're not familiar with Reverend Barber, he is powerhouse and uh, really um, advocating for a better just a, an overall better world for everybody um, a more humane a more humane way of being and supporting one another. but yeah, so Selma was where we made those connections. Um, and yes, as Jesse said, I, we, I, I did, I, I always brought my child, <laughs> I always brought my child to all of our activities because I thought, you know, democracy is a, is a practice that children need to be brought into as well. Um, in fact, I can point back to Birmingham and the, um, the protests in Birmingham, the children's, the children's March in Birmingham, um, which was a hugely influential, influential and, um probably has left a significant visual mark on most of our memories from the footage that we've seen of the young children, uh, fire hoses and dogs and the power of that particular movement that was spearheaded by um, Dr. King, Shuttlesworth, uh, and Abernathy. Um, But yeah, so so children came and yeah, we always had I I always advocated for doing something to keep the kids uh, entertained while we were there, to try to make it festive, not, not a, you know, something that the children could also enjoy being part of. (laughs) <laughs> and so I think you, Jesse was always fascinated by the balloon animal.
0: <laughs> you, you were incredible. We had to; we we're pulling a wagon. They were making you were one of the most popular events on the bridge crossing for kids because families in Selma on the Jubilee Day, the bridge crossing day. I mean, thousands of people come and commemorate that bridge crossing, and and that bridge crossing is full of famous people. We've had Obama. We've had Clinton. We've had Biden, we, we've always have, We have Reverend Barber, uh, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis was on every bridge crossing. And I was there on his last bridge crossing when we were there with some SOS uh, members on, on that, uh, United to Save Our Schools members. And I, and I remember that he stopped in the middle of the bridge, everything stopped. Now we were talking 20,000 people. The Edmund Pettus Bridge is a pretty small bridge and if you can stop that bridge, it stops things for blocks down. And he gave a, 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 a CNN sort of little talk over there. And we were just like mesmerized uh, in, in that sense. So Selma was the is the place that you get to see all the famous voices in the civil rights movement. And yes, you're right. Selma was that venture Reverend Barber. If I, we went, uh, I went to his services. I went to his organizing committee. And Barber really helped me understand that you're not going to improve our public schools until you improve every aspect of life. If you want to fight for better public schools, you have to fight for better health care. You have to fight for better wages. You have to fight for voting rights. And I remember him waking us up and United to Save Our Schools has jumped right on. Which brings me, I need to bring Denisha because Denisha at Howard, we had an event that brought Reverend Barber to, to Washington, D.C. And we had one of the best conferences I have ever attended. Denisha, could you tell us about what United to Save Our Schools and the connection to Howard was?
1: Yeah, so um, five years later, so 2016, and we were like, we need to do it up again, and I was still at Howard University, teaching in the School of Education, and we decided that was the place to be, and um Reached out to the dean at the time, you know, she had found out about my activism work and I was keeping it on the hush hush because I really didn't know. And I remember the first United opt out. So we are like at the we're going to be in front of the Department of Ed. And I wasn't like saying anything. And we go into this faculty meeting and her name was Leslie Fenwick. She was the dean at the time. And she was like, Dr. Jones, we need to talk. True. This is amazing. I'm so glad Howard represented, and I was like, "Ooh, I didn't know this was a good thing, right?" Um, so she was actually transitioning out of her deanship at around 2016, but I did. She did lend a hand to helping us get the space at Howard University. So we did our. You know, five year anniversary of Saving Our Schools March, and back in DC at at Howard this time, we did have Reverend Barber come. So we had the conference part that you know I remember us having at American, now at Howard. We also had the rally and the march part um, at on the Capitol. And so we did have, it was amazing. It was an amazing day. We had a ton of speakers. We had performances, so many people. Again, Jonathan Kogel was there. I remember hanging out with him for a little while. Um, we had uh, G2 Brown was there because he became That's really right. big in the movement. Um, I know I got some New York City folks down. DJ Farrow was there doing hip-hop workshops. We had so many people. And all of those groups were now five years into it. So they were all there participating in the movement. United Opt Out, Badass Teachers, Defending their. Early years, like all of us working together at Save Our Schools at that time. Um, and it was really good. It was a really memorable time that we were able to come back. And it was sad that the fight wasn't over. I don't think it'll ever be over, but we were able to come back and keep it going. And so, yeah, that was 2016.
0: I, I remember there's a, a great picture. Of we, we have three exceptional uh, Black educational activists. So We have Jamal Bowman, who's mm-hmm. Congressman Jamal Bowman, um, have a nice picture of them just standing together. Yuhu Williams, mm-hmm. who I forget if he's the provost or vice president at one of the schools in Minnesota, I forget what university now, and mm-hmm. we have Jesse Hugopian as well. And the three of them are looking at the monument. And they and and it's just one of the uh, great pictures, but it was incredible the friendships that we did. We always had Barry Lane there, Barry Lane sings some kind of hallelujah song and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we had, Things. lots of Chicago teachers, Uh, 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 Barbara Maldononi from the Massachusetts Teachers Association brought a bus down over there. But I remember that that event uh, uh, distinctively. And we've been engaging and continuing the work in a different way. So it's hard to get people to, we had groups of, we had a group of teachers that came all the way from Detroit in 2015, they took a bus. I remember them getting off the bus, coming into the hotel, being dead tired and stuff, and then being fired up to go to the rally. And I was like, I'm too old. I don't think I could be doing that. I'd, I'd probably be falling asleep, but they were really fired up. But but we we started realizing in terms of how much money and how much effort and, and airfare and all of this. and And then we started switching to these critical dialogues So, uh, and we've had all kinds of critical dialogues with union people with all kinds of, it's just amazing. And they're all on our webpage. So in the the chat box, you can click on the Save Our Schools webpage to see our platform, to see events we do, current events, future events, all kinds of information. So I put it in the chat box, people. It's an amazing group and you could get a newsletter following up kind of with us and follow us and we'll let you know. But I really wanted to move into some of the current things. So last night we had a webinar. I mean, because if everyone's talking the teacher shortage, Harry will say, Hey, Dr. Turner, you've done a couple of shows on the teacher shortage. I think Denisha, you were in one as well. A- and we've done, I've done it with teachers, I've done that. Last night we had Dr. Santoro, I think it was, and talking about demoralizing teachers. Becky, could you tell us about that?
2: And yeah. Yeah, we had an amazing panel last night. Uh, we had Dr. Doris Santoro from Bowdoin College in Maine. We had Julia Hazel, who's the director of BIPOC um, Ed leadership and career advancement in Portland, Maine. And then we had Ol- um, Olga Acosta Price, who's from George Washington University, who's um, director of Center for Health and Healthcare in Schools. And the topic last night was um, was demoralization, which. Uh, is different than burnout. Burnout is pretty much just exhaustion. And the if you listen to the discourses around the teacher shortage right now, what we keep hearing is teachers are burning out, they're burning out, they're burning out. Yeah, of course they are, but that's not the foundation of, of that's not the foundation that's crumbling underneath them. Folks like Doris, Julian, Olga argue that the found the that what's what's dismantling the profession right now is demoralization, which is um essentially, you know, educators go into the field, we work under the presumption that educators go into the field with a desire to do something good, to give back to their communities. Um, it's not a self-serving, um, it's not a self-serving field. And so the rewards of being in, in schooling spaces with children and with communities um, are the interactions, the human interactions um, that make us feel like we're contributing to a better world. And the com- the complexities with demoralization is that Constraints get put into place that start to prevent um, educators from being able to feel the intrinsic rewards of teaching, Um, and that that starts to slowly break down. um, I I would argue, certainly, starts to break down our mental health. Seeing the wear and tear of social neglect on the bodies of children and families, seeing the ways that our colleagues of color and our children of color um, are treated. In uh, by and through the practices of an institution that are inherently uh, rooted in racism and white supremacy and how those types of things wear away at our moral fabric and uh, make a lot of folks desire to leave the field because they can no longer handle not being able to access the moral good of the work that education, I think, can and should be. Um, And so we had... We had an amazing panel last night um, uh, address address these issues. And and what's wonderful about it is Doris's work. um, She uh, wrote a book called Demoralization, um, Why Good Teachers Leave the Profession They Love. I'm looking for it now. I'm trying to find it, make sure I got the title right. Uh, Published in 2018. It's a great book. (laughs) Thank you, Denisha. It's a great book. And what's wonderful about it is her study in that book looked at Um, veteran teachers. Now, see, typically what we hear is people leave the field within the first four years. But Doris looked at veteran teachers who had been at this for a long time, who had endured NCLB and uh, Race to the Top and and the types of reforms that Jesse mentioned early in the show, and looked at the veteran teachers who decided to stay and what it was that they did to do what she calls remoralize themselves. And all of it comes down to finding some sort of way to re-channel the moral good of our work, whether that be through um, social activism, whether that be altering, greatly altering what we do in the classrooms, um, whether that be uh, becoming more involved in the unions. But the key for everybody's survival, everybody's remoralization was communal connection. Everybody had to find some sort of the the people that she researched, they all found some way to get outside the walls of their own classroom. Because for those of you who haven't taught before, teaching, particularly in elementary school, it can be unbelievably isolating you, you know, you're trapped in a room all, not, I mean, yeah, so in some schools, depending on where you are, you're trapped in a room all day with kids, you can't go to the bathroom, you know, and then I know when I was teaching in Florida, we were really prohibited from doing things like we were um, going out for recess, you know, so like, it was very room-centered, you know, you're kind of trapped in this space, and your nose is to the grindstone, and you're working through things with kids, so it can be a really isolating experience, um, and so I think once teachers get their bearings, um, about the work itself, um, within a classroom. I, I think that maybe then it opens up space for them to be able to branch out. And for Doris, according to Doris's research, this was a lot of what helped people remoralize themselves. So the book is really phenomenal. And then Julia talks about ways that, um, demoralization influences, um, uh, educators of color and educators and staff of color in particular, because obviously, um, there are different dynamics. She talked about the, um, the, the smog of, of uh, racism and running up against these, uh, these walls, these walls of whiteness and the problems that these create for educators of color. And then um, Olga, of course, talks about the ways, similar to what we were talking about with, Dr., um, with Reverend Barber, about the need to really increase the support systems around the schools to make schools more vibrant places for humans who live and work inside, inside the walls.
0: No, definitely. Definitely. And, and you just you had mentioned quickly about you know, it's sitting in their chairs and not and and not even, sometimes not even be able to go to the bathroom or that kind of stuff. Uh, before I I, I asked Denisha some other stuff. Denisha uh, from defending the early years certainly has a position on the power and the importance of play in our schools. Denisha, could you tell us? Uh, should we let kids play? Maybe we should just tie them down into those chairs. You know, put some glue uh-huh. in there and tack them down and. Tell them sit, be quiet, and pay attention. What do you think? No pay? way,
1: Jesse. Not if we want them to be good functional human beings. Um, so I'm a huge true play advocate, warrior for play. I think it can solve like 99% of our problems, the other 1% being people still need food and water. <laughs> right. But like play can solve almost everything else, right? Um So, and it's interesting because you you were talking earlier about the research about how the testing doesn't work, right? And even now we have new research on this, right? So um, folks out of Vanderbilt, Dale Farron is one of the team, right? They were in Vanderbilt College. They were working with the state of Tennessee to do the first ever randomized control study of preschool in state of Tennessee. So Tennessee opened up the preschool, but it still wasn't enough. So they had all these people applying to preschool in Tennessee, and half of them couldn't get in and half did. So that gave them a randomized control study, which is like the gold standard for for research, right? So they said, okay, we're going to track the ones who went to preschool in Tennessee, and we're going to track the ones who didn't go to preschool in Tennessee. So the end of the pre-K year, those who went to preschool are doing great. And everyone's like, see, look, preschool's great. Okay. And the kindergarten, mm, not looking so different here, right? The ones who didn't go to preschool are now catching up at the end of kindergarten. By the end of third grade, the kids who went to the preschool are doing worse than the kids who did not. And it continued on through sixth grade, both academically and behaviorally. So why is that happening? They all decided to look at why. Because of academic preschools. That's why. The state-funded Tennessee preschools were academically focused and children were getting a lot of teaching in skills, right, like surface skills of letters and numbers, right? But they weren't getting the foundational skills through play, inquiry, storytelling, acting out, right, that's going to help you down the line. So, yes, if you sit down a four-year-old and you teach them nothing but letters and skills and numbers, they're going to know that. But that doesn't mean they're going to learn the harder stuff later, because they're missing out on all the high quality experiences that let you learn all that harder stuff later. And it's not being skilled and drilled to death on your letters and numbers out of context, right? And so that is to me has been, again, we know the data, but we have it right now in black and white, right? Like they're doing worse six years later in this study in Tennessee, right? Because the kids didn't get a chance to play if they were in a state funded academic preschool, as opposed to the kids who did get to play in the other preschool at home. The the kids who didn't go to preschool were mainly at home and they do different skills at home, right? And she talked about economically secure families and how they focus on the underlying skills. I'll put a link to the blog she wrote for Defending the earlier, where she has this good visual of an iceberg, right? And on the top are the surface skills that academic programs for young kids focus on. But on the bottom are all these deep underlying skills that you don't get from that. You get from hands-on experiences that most families of means tend to give to their children, but that we don't give to low-income children and a color in the name of preparing them for kindergarten readiness, right? So, no, it, it, if we just let the kids play, and I mean play for a long time, and it would do so much better, right? We would do so much better for kids, um, their emotional development, social development, physical, language, cognitive, all of that stuff would do so much better if we got rid of all the forced teaching, right? You know, we're in these reading wars again with people, you know, attacking reading and science of reading and all of this, right? But what we forget is that children need to be inner motivated to want to read and to hear stories, and that doesn't come from forcing them to read. it comes from being in a literate environment where people talk and tell stories and read to you right and so mm-hmm. I can go on, but you know play is the way play is the way
0: Play is the way, and it's perfect because uh, while Save our, United to Save our schools has a whole spring campaign of, of talking about all these issues in, in, in standing up to failed education reforms and keeping motivating teachers and helping children. But one of those things is the very nature of these high stakes assessment. So we, we have some some webinars coming up on, on uh, about high stakes assessment. Can you tell us a little bit about them? People remember they're free. Just go to the link we put in the chat. Uh, or email me and I'll send it to you. Uh, but it will be enlightening. Could you tell us a little bit about the anti-high stakes assessment group or, or webinars?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to happy to offer up. So, so we've um, this this school year, I guess we'll consider it a school year. We've um, been doing a series of webinars uh, called "Challenging the Latest Attacks on Education and Educators." Um, we, uh, Denisha. Would, um, did one back in October for us on moral injury and professional solidarity. And then obviously we had the one last night on demoralization. And on February 8th, we have um, examining the moral injuries and oppressive impacts of high-stakes testing. And that particular, um, we've got a lot of panelists on that one, which is um, uh, Dr. Wayne Au, who some of you may know um has written some wonderful books, um, critiquing the historical issues with high stakes testing. Uh, He's out of University of Washington. Um, As Jesse mentioned earlier, Congressman Jamal Bowman is gonna be there. Uh, Harry Fetter from um, Fairtest is going to be there. Fairtest has been around for a few decades now. Um, arguing for fair and equitable testing approach or assessment approaches, uh, Deborah McCarthy, who is vice president of the Massachusetts uh, Teachers Association, and then doc- of course powerhouse Dr. Angela Valenzuela, um, who's coming in from um, University of Texas at Austin, who has written extensively on the problems of um, of of testing and language and culture and how um, the biases that are written into the tests. So um, that in and that one is going to be facilitated by um, our own Ricardo Rosa, who will be um, taking taking the reins on on that one so again, that's February eighth from seven to eight thirty eastern um, It's a zoom webinar, so you're welcome to register um, register for free online
0: and uh, And we'll put that link for the registration in the box uh, and the reason Ricardo Rosa would have been with us today but he's in Bedford Massachusetts uh kicking off the campaign uh for fighting uh the emphasis on high stakes assessment in in Massachusetts i wanted to 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 also think about one of the things that when we look at the save our schools platform which people can can look at the link our platform supports uh a diverse education uh diverse literature uh, uh embracing the identities and the communities of the children who come out, come to our school, and and I wanted to ask both of you. And I'll start with Denisha. I've been everybody's been paying attention to Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, and as we pay attention to him, his his attacks on what he's calling woke teachers his uh, rejection of an advanced placement uh, Black History course, uh, his bill questioning, you know. Uh, anything that has to do with, with uh, uh, gender identity in schools, things like that. And, and I have a number of Florida teachers who have emailed me recently saying they're leaving the state. Well, Denisha, uh, maybe we'll start with you and then Becky will do the same. I- I'm wondering, uh, I- I'm gonna tell you right now, my teachers used to, uh, our state used to graduate more teachers than we could hire in the state. And Florida was one of the places to go. I haven't had a teacher in our program want to go to Florida in two years. So could you tell us, how does that make teachers feel? I mean, Denisha, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot and say, how does that make teachers of color feel? Would that would well, Florida be an attractive place? Or some our our, our teachers before also, our teachers who, 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 who can be an LGBTQ teacher. How can I be that teacher and not be allowed to mention it?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the te- I think the teachers feel very much like they that they're no longer allowed to be who they are in the classroom. It's not a safe space, right? I think Florida is not a safe space for people of color, specifically black people, for people who are LGBTQ identifying or just allies, right? Like I wouldn't feel safe there as a heterosexual person just because I'm an ally, right? to the LGBTQ people and it's not safe to be there, right? And so I think what's coming up and what's really happening here is that what we're seeing is this idea that states have a right to to limit, right? We saw so much growth in in understanding um, anti racist work, right? After the murder of George Floyd, like we have to back up and see what was happening in this country, right? So in the middle of a pandemic in 2020, the world watched police officers murder a black man on TV while he screamed in his last dying breath for his mother, and it galvanized the country to so that there were protests in every major city in the United States for that weekend and sustained protests for months in places like Seattle. right? And I think that point gets missed out. All the books were flying off the shelf. You couldn't find an anti-racist book to save your life. People were sending out statements. They were like, enough is enough, Black Lives Matter. We were finally seeing movement in this area. And then in the drop of a dime, we get Trump and the 17-whatever commission. We get attacks on CRT, attacks on legislation. And Ron DeSantis running rampant with it in Florida, right? So this is what Carol White calls ba- the white lash, right? The black, the backlash to Black advancement, right? White rage, right? As she calls it. Carol Anderson, I'm sorry, that's her name. Carol Anderson and, and, and the white rage, right? And so we see any type of advancement and this is the backlash. and And it's growing and it's concerning because now it's being legislated. So think about what's happening in Florida to teachers. If I am a teacher and I teach something that makes a white child feel uncomfortable, their parents can sue me and I can lose my teaching license in the state of Florida for making a child feel uncomfortable because of something I said in a lesson. That is like the crux of how they're going after teachers. So they talk about they're protecting employees and families, but they're only protecting whiteness. They're making it impossible to challenge whiteness in any sense, right? Um, To say anything and think about, uncomfortableness and how that comes up with teaching, right? I just told my students, you know, you ever see a a child watch those videos of like the, Sarah McLaughlin and the animal abuse, right? Like every parent will tell you, oh my God, my kid wants to go save the animals now. They they see the dim commercial and their hearts are breaking. Yet I don't see anybody throwing Sarah McLaughlin in jail because she's making these videos that are making kids feel uncomfortable, right? Because animal abuse is uncomfortable and it's supposed to string at your heart and make you feel for the animals. So you donate money and you take care of them. Well, guess what? Racism is uncomfortable. White supremacy is uncomfortable. Talking about these things should make you feel uncomfortable because it's, that's the only way we're gonna address it. And the state of Florida and other places, you know, Ron DeSantis is not alone. He might be the loudest one in the room right now, but he's definitely not alone, are, are trying to make that illegal, right? For teachers, for educators, to do what it takes to get people to get into that discomfort and move forward, right? If you study the stages of racial identity development, you learn that the one of the second stages when white people get introduced to this work is that they get angry and they blame the victim. Half of the country is stuck in that stage. There are four more stages to go, people. If you would just get out of that anger and discomfort and move forward, you can get to a better place. But they are stuck there and they want to stay there. And that's what we're seeing in Florida. And that is a danger to all of the black teachers, co- teachers of color, all of the LGBT teachers and their students. Think about a young black child in Florida. Think about a, a young gay child or trans kid in Florida. They're being told that their identity is illegal, that their history doesn't matter. And it's not worth knowing. So yeah, it's it's a bad time to be a teacher in Florida. It always has been. Um, and it's getting worse. It definitely is. Not only in Florida. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah, And the sunshine isn't helping. That used to be an attraction for Connecticut teachers graduating from our program. That would be one of the attractions. Another place yeah. would be Texas because there was plenty of work in Texas and nobody's going to these states now. And, and Dr. Nation- you are not gonna
1: teach in that. those states, right? right. Who's no. gonna go be a teacher there?
0: There are over 50,000 openings in Florida right now today. So just in case some teacher out there is desperate for a job, Florida is hiring. hiring. You just not, might not wanna teach there. Uh, one of the things that, that and, and it comes back to uh, things that in our platform in the United to Save Our Schools platform, and you have three founding members on this radio show today. So we, we, we debated our platform for months and months and months. Uh, and we debated every, every, probably every year and, and stuff. But one of our platforms is an embracing of diversity in America. And uh, in, in that sense, and and we have to acknowledge that more than half of our children are children coming from diverse communities in our public schools today. So that's one. Rudine uh, Sims Bishop talks about uh, mirrors, windows and sliding doors. And she says all three of these things are powerful in the books we read. And so when you ban books, when you tell teachers they, that their books have to be approved by a committee. Uh, some crazy people want to ban anything that mentions uh, any anything that mentions diversity uh, but coming back to that 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 point about these mirrors uh in literacy, I know when a child sees themselves in the book, a light bulb goes off. They work harder, they engage harder, they're motivated, and they want more so that's one the other is books are the way that we we understand how to get along with others in our world, because that other diet, when when Rudine Sims says uh, windows, she means we're looking into the lives of others Uh, and we get to learn about each other. So we need and we need more of that, not less of that today. And then those ones, the sliding doors, and the sliding doors are the ones where you get to, to walk in the shoes of another person. And those are the books, the most powerful, Rudine Sims will talk about. They are transformational moments for for readers uh and who what are those books those are the books like the killer markenberg those are the books uh drama uh those are the books that talk about gender issues about race about Rupert bridges about black lives Matter. no when when ron desantis made his at his uh, announcement the other day he specifically mentioned that he was rejecting uh the advanced placement uh black history course because of black lives matter the 1619 project uh 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 black feminism black lgbt he named the whole a whole range of of things that would be insulting to teachers so uh i i think it's important for our audience to know that it books connect when books connect to children personally it it, it motivates and engages and stimulates them and and it makes us all better in the world so it's just a component over there but tell me more where where's where's where do you want to take this United to save our school? Are we going to have a rally? are we going to have a, a new conference are we going to, are we going to continue to do our, our our critical discussions what's the plan? you know help me out you're our young guns so we can well, we can stick with you
2: or, i think you know i think um I, I I did want to follow up with something that Denisha had mentioned too about the the capacity for um now for um for the families of white children to be able to sue over the discomfort of the white children. I wonder if this will open up space actually to be flopped on its head, where um, it would be interesting to see a class action lawsuit come up against um, against the public schools or DeSantis in general, right? For the um, for the discomfort of um, of families of color and children of color in school, right? I think it would be an interesting thing. Have they opened up have they you know is it is it possible that a space could have opened that might come back to be utilized against them one can only hope that i know historically that is not the case but <laughs> yeah, um, no, no, no. yeah. And Jesse also
1: there, there is a lawsuit being filed against that te- for teachers, I think, are filing, but that's another avenue, right? And I think that's the legal argument that legal scholars are going to have to look at. Like, if you're making this an issue, so, you know, people have joked around, well, algebra makes me uncomfortable. Can I sue the teacher, right? But yeah, no one's taking into account the comfort of Black children, the comfort of children of color, the comfort of LGBTQ children. And so it's an equal rights issue, too. And that's the first challenge they're going, that it violates equal rights. But then on the flip end, you should be able to use the equal rights law to say that I am not comforted by the, by Florida, right? I think in the long run, colleges across the world are going to have to decide whether Florida students are eligible. I, you know, you're not, are you really eligible to come to college somewhere else after the education you're receiving? I, I don't, I don't see that. I don't, and not thinking to keep them out, but like designing whole summer pre-college programs to really help college kids who graduated from Florida high school get onto college because they are not college ready with that attitude right unless they're going to stay in florida right and so there's a lot of people talking about different ways um mark in has questioned whether uh, pro pro college athletes around the country need to refuse to go play in florida until some of this stuff is done use the power of their you know what they bring to the table to say no i'm not going to go play in, in any college in florida right and what other ways can we really think about challenging that um, but yeah it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out
0: it's, Yeah, it's 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 uh I remember that when uh, we we've had two uh, we joined So United to Save Our Schools supports the actions of group, like-minded groups, like United Opt Out, and they had two occupies in D.C. where we occupied the Department of Education, and and BATS have had, Badass Teachers Association, have also had two events in D.C. And the last one, it might have been 2015, I'm not certain, it could have been 2016, but I remember uh, I was doing one of the keynotes there, and we even put, like Arnie Duncan and all these people on trial there, mock trial, we did that at that one. But my question, I looked at all the research and the data that showed these policies are failing, uh, our children, disengaging. And really my, my question is, where's the humanity? But where's the humanity in, in an education system that, that won't allow you to be you, won't allow us, you know, it's, it's just, I don't even know. It's, it's frightening. But United to Save Our Schools is definitely in the mix. I'm thinking about, Denise, if you were thinking uh, our connection with uh, uh, defending the early years. So you're, you're the, I think you're the director of that group right now. Could you talk a little bit about how we like, I don't know if one grew out of the other, we grew together. I don't know how 2011 that that March on Washington would have had 12,000 people without Diane Ravitch, Nancy Carlson Page, and Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. I mean, that brought the press came flying down. They didn't really come to Angela, uh, uh, Venezuela was there. All, all people were there. But I know that when Matt Damon took that stage, every reporter in DC was there. And and Arnie Duncan was on the phone begging him not to go. Don't go <laughs> to the rally, don't go, come see me. And, you know, so, Uh, But I I want to, because I think one of the most powerful things about United to Save Our Schools is how it collaborates with others. And you're a good example. So could you tell us about the collaboration between Defend the Early Years and United to Save Our Schools?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I just go by the dates, right? When were we founded? Defending the Early Years was founded in 2012, right? Badass Teachers, when were we started? 2012, right? You know, all of these groups, United, opt out. We all, like, some of them met there and they've been thinking about it. But I think that event really brought people together who had these like-minded ideas and said, look, we can do this. And it energized people. And it it really, it just, there was a spirit of getting together, right? And so, you know, Nancy Carlson Page, Diane Levin were really thinking about, everyone with up in arms about you know no child left behind and the common core right and all of these things and you know, from the perspective, we it's like we need to make sure that early childhood stays in this conversation, right? Because we know that most teachers are not teaching early childhood, right? And most people were thinking of testing, right? They weren't thinking of the pretest that a first grader in kindergarten has to take, right? They're thinking of the actual test that starts in third grade, right? And so we wanted to make sure that we stayed a part of the conversation and said, yeah, if you're talking about boycotting standardized testing, we got to talk about the impact of standardized testing on young children, right? So looking at the common core state, standards. They were awful for kindergarten. They still stayed at a five-year-old should be able to write a paragraph. Like, what are we talking about here? They're five. Or, or, or like, you know, the, the skills that are required are ridiculous. Like, no five-year-old should have to do that. Maybe some can, but none should have to, right? And so Nancy um, got together and, with Diane and they formed the an organization and they started putting out different information about the harms of the standards, working with some giants in the field, like Lily and Katz, right, and other folks, and working collaboratively with other folks. fair tests, right, was doing a lot on testing. So they came to us and said, okay, well, let's talk about testing in young children. What's the impact? How do we get that going? So we have that fact sheet as well too, right? Um, and so yeah, we were able to just work with all the organizations to make sure that the needs of early childhood children and their families and teachers stayed in the forefront of everybody else's movements and so we could be that voice right so people would reach out to us and say hey hey how you know can you come talk about the early childhood issues whether it's testing or opting out what does this mean for young children what does this mean for for early childhood teachers and that was always been great about the how we came together that we looked out for whose story was not being told right when Journey for Justice started growing looking at the issues impacting you know marginalized black families we were quick badass teachers all of us wanting to reach out how can we Support journey for justice when they did the hunger strike with the teachers in diet right for the diet school that was being closed down or their events as well too their their reports and their events on on Capitol Hill as well. Um, so we were doing all of that together. And so I think it's been it's been great. Now I get to be the executive director, continuing working. You know, just uh, two years ago, 2020, so right, yeah. We were like, oh, look, COVID, no tests. And then we were like, oh, look, maybe we won't have tests anymore. And Biden went back on his promise to me at the Public Education Forum that we had with Network for Public Education. If you remember, December 2019, so wild, right? No one can remember. But we had our first... Pre- like uh, pre-presidential debate, right? They were all still running for the nomination, only focused on public education. So no charter lovers, no, none of those people, it was just public ed folks. And we had all of them. There were like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 democratic nominations. And I got to ask Biden directly, would he end standardized testing? And he mumbled some long-winded answer, pretty much telling me I was preaching to the choir. Yes, yes, yes. So here we go then. COVID comes. Year one, no testing. Year two, oh my goodness, if there's no testing, it's over. And what do they do? They they mandate testing, right? And so we all jumped in. All of a sudden, United opt out, got some life in them. We came back. We met with Uniting to Save Our Schools, Defending the earlier jumped on board. And we had anti-testing school uh, toolkits out. We were moving, right, trying to push people back in this area. So we've been able to work together in a lot of ways because we started we, we, uh, Save Our Schools in 2011, and Uniting to Save Our Schools continues to, to bring us together, which is really important.
0: That's excellent there. Uh, Becky, because we're, we're going to, we're coming on our last few minutes. Becky, could you tell us what uh, your hopes are for in the direction of Uniting to Save Our Schools
2: and our collaboration? Well, you know, um, back to the question that you asked in the chat and that you mentioned earlier, like where is the humanity? The humanity is in acts of resistance and love against the power that keeps getting written written into policies and practices that harm children, teachers, and communities. Right, and so I think that one of the things that we've been good at, and and that I that I continue to to look forward to, are the very things that Denise is talking about collaborating with others, continually learning about the parts of education and well-being in general that maybe we've, we've not considered. How do we broaden our own understandings of that? How do we add support behind, um, you know, to Denisha's point, right, like Journey for Justice has done unbelievable things, right? How do we amplify, how do we add our support behind them and help amplify the work that they're doing. You know, how do I share this with my students? How do I share this with the community? And I feel like ultimately um, it is in ever increasing amounts of collaboration and understanding and pushing toward a more humane, uh, pushing toward more humane public schooling practices and policies um, that recognize and embrace the cultural and linguistic diversity of our of our of our students, of our children, of our communities. Um, and uh such that they can be, um, such that they can be in a place where they feel they can be them, unfearfully, unapologetically, um, and be embraced for being who they and their families and their ancestors are.
0: Definitely. So when I'm thinking about the this where we're going in the future with United to Save Our Schools, it, it's as Becky said, is the humanity is in our resistance through acts of love. And, and how can we, how, how this nation spends $23 billion more a year on wealthy white schools than on schools of color and poor schools. This nation spends nearly $2 billion every single year on high stakes testing. And if they worked, we've been doing them for over 100 years. Don't you think we would have heard about it by now? I mean, I, I think so. so. We're literally spending nearly $25 billion a year on policies that research is well-documented, a hundred years of research that says you will increase behavioral problems, you will increase dropouts, uh, you, you will actually uh, increase uh, failure in your schools by emphasizing that. And that's not to say we don't have to have some kind of assessment that's over there, but right now they're driving everything. And what are they driving? They're driving out first books. They're driving out, uh, uh, you know, just everything that's humane and decent. Uh, A black child, a brown child, uh, uh, an immigrant child, all children deserve to be valued and respected in our public schools. Fight the power, united to save our schools. Thank you, everybody. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition. filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up. Fall down, I just got to get up, get up.